So we are picking up again on a um, sermon series that we pressed pause on back in the month of June called uh, The Unstoppable Gospel in the New Testament Book of Acts. And by way of recap, uh, so we've um, obviously covered um, chapters 1 to 12 uh, earlier on in the year. And you may remember that uh, one thing that we noticed from the book of Acts is that it's all about the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ as uh, Jesus calls his disciples to take his message to the ends of the earth with the help and with the power of the Holy Spirit. So you might remember that we've seen that one key um, scripture in the book of Acts is at Acts 1 verse 8 where Jesus says these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you'll uh, remember that we've seen a number of things about this particular um, verse. And one is that it kind of moves the book of Acts out like a table of contents really or as concentric circles as you can see there on the screen as the message about Jesus goes from Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria and now when we come to Acts chapter 13 this morning we are very much in the beginning to go to the ends of the earth bit um, and so I'm going to ask uh, Wayna if uh, she would come up now and she's going to read uh, Acts chapter 13 verse 1 to 41 uh, which is printed there on your um, notice sheets, and this is really the um, uh, Luke's account of the first part of Paul's first uh, missionary journey. So uh, over to you, Wayna. Thank you very much. Today's reading is from Acts 13, verses 1 to 41. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. 
Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today, I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, You will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Well, thank you very much. Wayne. Well, the um, news story that we've already referred to this morning, which will have been on many people's minds at the end of this week, of course, is the death of Queen Elizabeth in the UK. It may interest many of you to know that we don't actually know very much about the Queen. But one thing that we do know for sure is that she had a very real and very strong personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is often expressed in her messages to the nation. 
And uh, you can see an example of one of them there on the uh, screen. So this comes from her Christmas message in uh, 2011. History teaches us that we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world neither a philosopher nor a general, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Now, of course, the Queen was also somebody who was very religious, very religious indeed. She must have gone to tens of uh, thousands of sort of church services over the course of her lifetime. In uh, one sense, it's hard to think of, of anyone who could conceivably be more religious than the Queen. She was, after all, head of the Church of England. But yet she was also someone who had come to place her faith in um, Christ in a real and personal way. And I think all of this is a very helpful introduction to our Bible passage this morning. In a few minutes, we will come to look at Paul's preaching in a place called Poseidon Antioch. And what we find there is an incredibly religious group of people. Yet Paul is clear that they cannot rely on their religious works to save them, but rather they need to come to place their faith and trust in Christ. Well, as we've already mentioned this morning, we're looking at the um, first half, really, of Paul's first missionary journey. That missionary journey is recorded for us in Acts chapter 13 and also Acts chapter 14 that we'll be looking at next week. And you can basically see where Paul travelled there on your screens. And so in the passage that was just read for us, we saw that uh, Paul uh, travels from Antioch. So he starts out at uh, Antioch, just near where the number one there is on the um, um, screen. He starts out at Antioch. And uh, he and Barnabas then travel to Cyprus, which is an island. They then travel uh, across that island from uh, east to west. They then go north into um, Turkey to a place called Perga, which you can see there, that's in the province of uh, Pan. Philia, and then they go north to what's called Poseidon Antioch, which is right at the top of your screen there, and that's where the Apostle Paul spends most of our time this morning uh, in the passage that we are looking at. And really the key thing here is that Paul is now taking the gospel to very new areas, areas where the good news about Jesus Christ had not gone to before. And the key thing in our passage this morning that we are looking at is that although Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, that we have two historical accounts here um, where um, he um, ends up encountering the Jewish religion. So you probably noticed in uh, verse 4 to 12 of our reading, we see him opposed by a Jewish sorcerer called Elimas. And then in verse 13 to 41, we see him preaching in a very Jewish context at the uh, synagogue in Poseidon, Antioch. And then uh, right at the end of our passage in the part that wasn't read um, for us, uh, we see the response of religious people to Paul. So then that's where we are going. So uh, number one, then, I would look, like to look at what I've called religious opposition. And this basically brings us to the encounter between Paul and Elimas. Uh, so we see from verse 1 to 3 that Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church at Antioch. Verse 4 tells us that they were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, which was great, and they sailed for Cyprus, uh, which we know was the home of Barnabas. In verse 5, we see that they proclaimed God's word, and they then 
travel throughout the whole length of the island. When they reach Paphos in the west, it says that they face opposition to their work. So the top Roman official in Cyprus was a proconsul by the name of Sergius Paulus. Uh, he was a Gentile. Uh, we read that he was an intelligent man who wanted to hear God's word, and so he sends for Paul and Barnabas. I think it is worth pausing there, really, to remind ourselves that uh, we do need to pray for those who are in government and who rule over us, and not just that they would rule well, although that's a really great thing to be praying for, but also that they might seek God, like we see Sergius Paulus um, doing here. However, verse 8 goes on to tell us that Paul and Barnabas were opposed by a Jewish false prophet called Elymas, uh, who tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, uh, Elymas was probably some sort of court wizard or sort of court magician to Sergius Paulus. Uh, he had some kind of position of power and influence at the court. Uh, most likely his role would have been to have sort of try to have, uh, cast spells on the ruler's enemies or maybe try and predict the um, future uh, or maybe protect the ruler from sort of being cursed uh, by anybody else, perhaps. It may all sound a little bit strange to us, uh, but um, this kind of thing was uh, relatively common um, in the ancient world. I think Elymas uh, realizes that his position is now under um, threat from the apostles who are gaining more influence than he has. And so he begins uh, a campaign to stir up things against them, uh, presumably by spreading lies about them maybe, or maybe by trying to prejudice the proconsul against them. How do, how do the apostles respond? Well, we see in verse 9 that Paul realizes the danger. We read he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks at Elymas, and then he... Uh, says in verse 10 and 11, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And then we read, immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I mean, imagine the terrible shock of what is going on here. One minute you can see, the next you instantly go blind and you are now groping about in the dark and needing someone to lead you by your hand. And this is basically God's judgment on Elymas. It shows us that God takes incredibly seriously those who seek to lead uh, those astray who are seeking him. This is actually echoed elsewhere in the words of Jesus. So we can think of a passage like uh, Matthew 18, verse 6, for instance, when Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Uh, incredibly hard words from the lips of Jesus, but they do communicate to us something of the great seriousness with which God takes uh, leading other people astray from the faith. Perhaps in our culture, uh, maybe one example would be to think of a parent. Uh, no parent would just sort of stand idly by and watch as um, somebody offered their children drugs. Uh, they wouldn't just stand idly by or just have a sort of um, casual conversation about it with them. Instead, they would act instantly and they would uh, respond very directly and very dramatically. 
Uh, Well, it's exactly the same with God. Paul understands that God's heart is that those who are seeking God are not to be led astray. Um, And so he acts boldly and decisively. I think this uh, miracle is probably also a picture of Elimas' religion. Uh, So paganism and magic are spiritually dark and spiritually blind. And so Elimas' blinding is really just an outward manifestation of his heart. Uh, Those who practice uh, magic may claim to be able to see, but they are actually blind and they're really just uh, groping about in the darkness. And then a great... uh, Surprise in verse 12, the proconsul sees what has happened and he comes to believe. We read, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So it's really interesting that ultimately the reason that he believes is the teaching that he has received about Jesus Christ. But yet it's what has happened to Elymas uh, that pushes him over the edge, if you like, and convinces him uh, to put his trust in Christ for himself. All of these things, of course, there's an uh, important lesson for us that God even uses the opposition of somebody like Elimas um, to ultimately lead the proconsul to faith in Christ. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas are opposed, they don't give in, but they keep on going, and the person they are witnessing to eventually becomes a Christian. I think there's a uh, number of uh, lessons here for us this morning. Um, Number one is I think that the gospel is more powerful than the forces of evil. The gospel is more powerful than the forces of evil. As uh, one commentator on Acts, um, John Stott, uh, comments, Luke brings before his readers a dramatic power encounter in which the Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one, the apostle confounded the sorcerer, and the gospel triumphed over the occult. If you're a Christian this morning, there is no need for you to live in fear of dark spiritual forces. As Christians, of course, we acknowledge the reality of spiritual evil, but we also know that Jesus Christ has triumphed over evil on the cross. And so if you are a Christian, there is no need for you to be scared of places that claim to be haunted. There is no need for you to live in fear of superstitions to do with death or to do with bad luck or being cursed. I think this story clearly shows that the gospel is more powerful than the spiritual forces of evil. I think also, if we are Christians, this story also encourages us to keep on sharing the gospel in spite of religious opposition. So it reminds us that God is actually in control of all things and that God is so in control of all things that he can even use opposition against his people to actually bring other people to a real living faith in him. This gives us great confidence, surely, this morning. Keep on sharing the gospel because you never know how God is working through you. Then uh, I think we can also see here evidence of God's grace. I wonder if you um, noticed this as we read it. But notice notice that Paul says that Elimas will only be blind for a time. I think that's a lovely evidence of of God's grace here. I think the implication is that Elimas actually still has time to repent. For any among you who may be involved in paganism or the occult or in um, superstition and magic, uh, this means um, that uh, this does not mean that there is no hope. 
And there's always time to repent and respond and come to our merciful God. Even in judgment here, God remembers mercy. So then, we see what I've called a religious opposition to the gospel. But then this isn't the whole story in our, our passage, because we also see here what I've called religious opportunity. So of course, it's not always going to be the case that the gospel will be opposed by those who are religious. Uh, it can also lead to opportunity as well, which is exactly what we see um, in the rest of this passage. So we see from verse um, 13 that Paul and Barnabas, they leave... Cyprus and they travel over to Perga and then it says that they continue on to Poseidon Antioch. So as we've already said this is not the same Antioch that we've seen before that Paul actually started out from. This is the uh, Antioch that you can see right up at the top of your um, map there. It's about a hundred miles uh, inland from Perga. And really the big significance of this account in Poseidon Antioch is that here we see Paul preaching an evangelistic sermon to Jews and to those associated with Judaism. This is the main example that we have of how Paul preached the gospel in a very Jewish context. Uh, next week, we, we will see Paul preaching an evangelistic sermon to pagan Gentiles at somewhere called Lystra. But uh, here, we see him preaching to the, the Jews and those heavily associated with Judaism, all of whom who would have had a background in the Old Testament scriptures. I think there's a couple of points here for us to note this morning, and uh, the first one is Paul's strategy. So this is actually something that we see many, many times in the book of Acts. As soon as Paul comes to a new place, what does he do? Well, he heads straight for the Jewish synagogue. Uh, and then, once he's thrown out of the Jewish uh, synagogue, which uh, usually happens fairly quickly, um, he takes the good news to the Gentiles instead. I think this is really all in keeping with what we see over in uh, Romans 1, verse um, 16, where Paul um, says these words. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so it seems as if this was just Paul's usual pattern when he preached the gospel in the ancient world. And we will actually um, notice this again next week. Now, I do not think this is saying that we still need to sort of prioritize evangelizing the Jews uh, over everybody else. I do not think that um, that's an implication of this. But this was the logical pattern for, for Paul when he was evangelizing in the ancient world. Paul was a Jew, and Paul knew that the Jews believed in one God, who was the, uh, the creator of all things, he knew that they were very well taught generally in the Old Testament scriptures, and so they were the logical place to begin um, when presenting the good news about Jesus. I think it's maybe uh, a question worth us um, thinking about this morning. Of course, this is not always the case, but it may be worth thinking about, well, are there religious people that we know and the religious people that we know may be the most natural people to either invite along to church or um, that we may actually have opportunities um, to speak about Christ with them. Now, of course, that's not always the case, but sometimes it can be a little bit easier to talk about church or to talk about Christian things or, or maybe your relationship with Christ with someone who is religious uh, rather than with someone who is not religious at all. It certainly seems as if that was uh, part of Paul's motivation here. And so he begins with those who already have some background in the Bible. 
And so we see Paul's strategy, but then we also see Paul's message. And uh, you probably noticed that Luke records the message that Paul preached. So from verse 16, actually, all the way to the end of our reading, down to verse um, 41, which I, I take, of course, it's not the whole thing, but yet it is an accurate um, account of um, basically Paul's message and what Paul said. As I mentioned earlier, really, the key thing here is that this is the main example that we have of how Paul presented the gospel to Jews And we see that it uh, divides up into basically um, three parts. So first of all, from verse 16 to verse 25, Paul really um, summarizes how God has worked through the history of Israel. So, for instance, Paul recounts God's grace as it had been shown throughout um, the history of Israel, about how God had uh, rescued his people from Egypt about how he had um, provided leaders for them and how all this had eventually culminated in the coming of Christ. Next, from verse uh, 26 to verse 37, he explains the historical facts about Jesus and the gospel, uh, especially Jesus' death and resurrection, about how the Jewish leaders had opposed Jesus and had actually had Jesus crucified, but yet all of this was actually in in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. And he goes on to quote Psalm 2, Isaiah chapter um, 55, and Psalm 16 to to kind of uh, underscore his case. Hopefully you can already see, though, how Paul is tailoring his message to his audience using the scriptures that they would have known and the scriptures that they were familiar with uh, to present Jesus to them. The fulfillment uh, of Jewish hopes and expectations, Paul is um, saying, was Jesus Christ. And God has proved this. God has proved who Jesus is by his resurrection, by uh, raising Jesus from the dead. And then we really come to the great conclusion of Paul's um, um, sermon, which I think is also the main lesson for us this morning in verse um, 38 and 39. So everything's really building up to this. This is the culmination of uh, what Paul's saying here. So verse um, 38, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And so this is really Paul's conclusion. Um, His main point, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Again, uh, there's a couple of things here for us to notice. Um, First of all, I think that relying on religious rules can never make us right with God. Relying on religious rules can never make us right with God. And just notice how clear Paul is here about this. In verse uh, 39, he says that justification, which simply means being declared right with God, cannot come about under the law of Moses. See, many of the Jews of Jesus' day would have tried to deal with the sin in their lives by trying to faithfully obey God's Old Testament law. If only they could keep all of those laws from the Old Testament, then they would eventually be accepted by God. But notice that Paul says this is impossible. No way. He says that Jesus has now brought about a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And so we clearly see that relying on religious rules can never make us right with God. And Paul's also really clear here um, that only Jesus Christ can bring us forgiveness 
Only Jesus Christ can bring us forgiveness. Of course, the fact of the matter was that the law could never save anyone. That wasn't even the intention of the Old Testament law. It was never intended to actually save anyone. Rather, the law was intended to reveal God's character to us. It was intended to reveal something of God's holiness to us. It was, it was intended to teach God's Old Testament people how to live. But it was never intended to be a means of salvation. The main reason for that, of course, the main reason why the law can't save anyone is because we just can't keep it. The pass mark for God's law was 100% holiness. You have to obey them all 100% of the time. And of course, that's a pass mark that none of us can ever make. I was uh, thinking about an illustration of it uh, this last week. Uh, it's a little bit like that cross harbor race that we have uh, where, where people uh, need to um, swim, I think, from uh, Wan Chai over to um, TST. I'm not sure if this is still taking place because of COVID, but um, you know, pre-COVID, um, this kind of thing was um, definitely on. But if you, if you think about that kind of um, swimming race, it really doesn't matter whether you only swim a, a kind of few strokes and then stop, or whether you make it right out into the middle of uh, Victoria Harbour and then um, um, stop. You, you still haven't made it over to Kowloon. And in exactly the same way, we all fall short of God's law. Now, of course, there's one problem with the illustration I just used, which is that if someone was a really good um, swimmer, they may be able to make it all the way over to Kowloon, but uh, with God's holiness, of course, God's law, the whole point is that we can never, ever make it. It would be like trying to swim across the Pacific Ocean, just this huge, enormous distance uh, that none of us could ever cross. But Paul's point is that the law can never save us. The law can condemn. The law can make us feel guilty. The, Lord can, the law can show us our sin. The law can do all kinds of things, but it can never actually uh, rescue us. It can never save us. It's only Jesus Christ who can bring us forgiveness through his death on the cross, as Paul makes clear here. Now, he also makes this clear over in his letter to the Galatians, so Galatians 3, and verse 10 and 11, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And then uh, just a couple of verses later on, verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So you can see Paul saying that when Jesus died on the cross for us, he took the curse of the law that we deserved and was standing against us. He took our punishment in his body on the tree, freeing us from God's judgment and the condemnation of the law as soon as we place our faith in him. As we often sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. And so, is it enough to be religious? Well, I think hopefully we've uh, seen from this passage of God's word that the answer to that has to be no. We can never be good enough or religious enough to save ourselves. Even if we swim really, really hard, uh, we can never, ever reach Kowloon. Uh, we all fall short. Every one of us needs Jesus in order to be declared not guilty and accepted by God. 
And so I think, especially if we are here maybe this morning, and uh, with somebody who isn't a Christian yet, I think the application for us surely has to be to give up on our religious works as a means of pleasing God. Uh, we'll look at a few more applications of uh, this kind of thing in the weeks to, to uh, um, come. But if you're someone who's here this morning and uh, you aren't a, a Christian, the application is for us to give up on our religious works as a means of pleasing God. Now, these, those may be so-called Christian um, religious works, like coming along to church or giving to charity, or maybe various uh, rituals like uh, taking communion or being baptized. Those are all really great things. But yet we need to realize that none of them ever contribute to our justification or our standing with God. And then I also think, though, there's lots of other ways that we can rely on religious rules, often without really even thinking about it. Uh, often we just make up our own rules, or we take on the rules of the culture and if we think that if we manage to keep them then uh, we are, are basically a good person uh, that we're basically doing okay in life and so we take pride in our work we think well so long as I'm a good employee my life really counts as long as I get good grades my life really counts as long as I'm a good parent and, and I manage to uh, make some really good good kids uh, then my life would uh, really count I'm doing okay see we're basically looking to our per- performance uh, in order to be declared righteous or to think about ourselves as righteous maybe or we have other rules maybe we think well I live my life in a way where I try not to hurt anyone or I never use single-use plastics that's where I get my a real sense of morality and goodness from I'm vegetarian I always eat or, or organic food uh, I've taken in a rescue dog maybe. That's what makes me a really good person. And we think that because we do these things, we are good. And we maybe even feel morally superior to everyone else. Now, again, a lot of those things can be really great. But actually, Paul says that none of those things can ever justify us or give us the peace or the forgiveness or the um, freedom that we, we crave. Rules always condemn They always make us compare ourselves to other people and lead to us either feeling proud if we feel that we're doing much better than everyone else or we tend to feel crushed and inferior if we feel that we're doing um, worse than everyone else and our lives are not measuring up. Instead, we need to come to Jesus Christ for the freedom and the forgiveness that he alone can offer. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? nothing but the blood of Jesus. I think all of this is especially true for those of you who are teenagers. Uh, I think back to when I was a teenager, I think one of my greatest misunderstandings about Christianity was that it was all about rules. So if you're a teenager this morning, please get this and please hear this really clearly. Christianity is not about trying to earn favor with God by keeping rules. It's about real um, freedom that can be only experienced by putting your faith in Jesus' death for you on the, the cross. And if you have trusted in Jesus' death for you, then you ought to feel um, um, free. We are free to obey God and free to be the people that he originally intended us to be. So then, uh, we've seen religious opposition. Sometimes religion will oppose the gospel. And we've also seen religious opportunity as well. Sometimes religion will give an opportunity to present the message about Christ. There's one uh, 
Last point that we will look at um, really briefly, uh, which is I've called religious response. So what is the response of the religious in our passage to all this? Well, this brings us to the um, last part of our passage, which we didn't actually read, but um, please do read it later on at home. And as we see so often in the book of Acts, we see different responses here. And first of all, we see the response of joy. It's in verse um, 43. We see that when the congregation was dismissed, many followed Paul and Barnabas because they wanted to hear more. Uh, Paul and Barnabas obviously talked with them during the week, and it says that they, that, uh, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. And evidently, some of them responded, and some of them believed in Christ, because we read later on, right at the end of the passage, verse um, 52, that when the missionaries left, they left behind a group of disciples who were filled with joy and were filled with the Holy Spirit. If our sins are forgiven and we found freedom in Christ, then we will be filled with joy. However, we also see the contrasting response here of jealousy. So in verse 44, the week after Paul and Barnabas had first spoken, they were invited to go back to the synagogue and uh, speak again. And this time, a huge crowd basically shows up. Uh, when the Jewish leaders see this enormous crowd who have um, showed up, probably many of whom may have been non-Jews or Gentiles, they are filled with jealousy. Uh, these new teachers, these new teachers in town are attracting way more people than they ever have. And uh, so they're green with envy and they heap abuse upon them. The tragedy here really is that it's all about pride. Uh, these religious leaders want to be in the limelight so much that they end up rejecting Jesus' words and his offer of eternal life. So Paul and Barnabas turn to the Gentiles instead, many of whom we read respond. And so really the big picture here is about God accomplishing his plans of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. If we look back over the whole chapter, for instance, in the account of Elimas, we can see Elimas opposing the gospel, but yet God continues to accomplish his plans. And this Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, comes to believe. In the account of Paul's preaching at Poseidon Antioch, some of the Jews believe, but yet many reject Yet God even uses their rejection to spread his gospel to the Gentiles. And so his plans to take the gospel to the ends of the earth continue to advance. The gospel truly is unstoppable, and therefore we can have great confidence in it. Um, a couple of years back, uh, right before COVID, uh, Miles and I attended a conference um, where the speaker was the author of the book there on the screen. So the speaker was an evangelist called Mac Stiles, and uh, he wrote the book there on the screen, which is called Marks of the Messenger. And in this book, uh, he tells the story of somebody that he knows who graduated from college with a degree in religion. Because they graduated with a degree in religion, they decided to go off to seminary and become a pastor. And so they did, and they graduated from seminary and became a pastor in a small but growing Presbyterian church in the southern USA. It's had a growing youth group and so the pastor helped out with the youth group and uh, attended their activities. These included going on the youth re retreat, so off the pastor went on the youth retreat and there he heard a speaker explaining the message about Jesus to the kids. And as he listened he came to an astounding realization he says that he had never actually come to place his faith in Jesus Christ for 
himself. He'd been educated in religion. He was a nice guy. He'd been a really good student. He was moral. He was someone who was upright. He was hardworking. He'd even been ordained in a large mainstream Christian denomination. His whole life, uh, from start to finish, had been filled with religion. But yet he was on his way to hell because he was relying on his works and had never, ever come to repent of his sins and trust in Jesus' death to bring him forgiveness. Now, we may wonder, well, uh, how on earth can that kind of thing happen? How can someone go to a Christian school and attend Christian college, maybe, and even become a pastor and even study theology and be really, really religious, but yet have never responded personally to the message themselves? But I guarantee you it can, and it does. And so the key question for us this morning is, what are you depending on for your justification? What are you depending on in order to be declared righteous before a holy God on that last day? The answer to that is anything other than the finished work of Christ, who paid uh, the price as a substitute for your sin on the cross. Then you may not, in fact, be a Christian. Now, you may be really, really religious, but you may not be a Christian, and you need to do exactly what that pastor needed to, to do and come to repent of your sins and uh, relying on your good works and come to place your faith in Christ. And if you do that, then Jesus promises that you will find the forgiveness and the um, freedom of knowing him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give thanks for your word to us this morning. We give thanks that there is indeed salvation to be found by faith in Christ. For those of us who are Christians, Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to be faithful to that message. And for those of us who aren't Christians yet, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand really clearly that our religious works can never make us right with you. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.